Chapter Thirteen of Whither Thou Goest by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Thirteen. The great anarchical association of which Ferdinand Contreras was a leading spirit did not differ greatly in essential features from those tyrannical and effete institutions which it was striving to supersede. There was still the wide gulf between the classes, bridged over speciously by the fact that they addressed each other as comrade, waiving all distinctive titles. The chief addressed the educated young fisherman as Somoza shortly, which was natural, and on the other hand Somoza addressed him, though always very respectfully, as Contreras, which would not have been at all natural under ordinary circumstances. Still, Somoza did not slap him on the back or take liberties, as he would have done with an elderly fisherman in his own rank of life. The gulf of class could not quite be crossed by dropping titles and calling each other comrade. And then there was the question of wealth. Contreras, in spite of his numerous donations to the cause, was still rich. So was Jacques. Zorilta was moderately well off. Alvadero and Lesway were poor. The sharing out had not begun yet. Lesue, as we know, lived in humble lodgings in Soho, which galled him somewhat, as he was fond of comfort and the flesh-pots. Contreras, after a brief sojourn at Fonterrabia, had come back to Madrid, where he had many friends in his own sphere of life. Although not of noble birth himself, he had married a woman, a member of a family poor, but boasting of the proudest blood of Spain in its veins. At Madrid he had engaged a suite of rooms at the Ritz Hotel in the Plaza de Canovas near the Prado Museum. Democrat and anarchist as he was in theory, the man delighted in displaying a certain amount of ostentation, whether at home or abroad. A little aware of his weakness in that direction, he consoled himself by the thought that, in doing this, he was throwing dust in the eyes of people of his own class that he could more successfully carry on his propaganda, because nobody would ever suspect him of seeking to overthrow the regime under which he had prospered so exceedingly. The young Frenchwoman Valérie de Mont was in Madrid at the same time also as Contreras. She was staying at an equally luxurious hostelry, the Grand Hotel de la Paix in the Puerta del Sol. She also had a suite of rooms imitating her illustrious chief. She chose to be known by her maiden name of Mademoiselle Valérie de Mont. It did not suit her emancipated notions that a woman should sink her identity in that of a husband. She had borne with the infliction for three short years of married life. When her elderly husband, a rich Paris financier, died, she found herself a very wealthy woman. Monsieur Varenne had no near kith or kin, with the exception of a few handsome legacies, he had left all his money to this young woman, who was very handsome and still young, only in the late twenties. Contreras was an anarchist by profound and philosophical conviction. He had persuaded himself that revolution, open and brutal revolution, was the only cure for a rotten and diseased world. Valerie had arrived at the same conclusion from a merely personal standpoint, from the point of view of her own feelings naturally of a morbid temperament, absolutely a child of the gutter, the offspring of drunken and dissolute parents who had starved and beaten her, she had suffered no illusions as to what existence meant for the impoverished. 
She was a sharp-witted child with plenty of brain power and a marvelous capacity for self-education. At the age of twelve her parents had sold her for a paltry sum to the proprietor of a traveling circus. This man had perceived at once that there was plenty of grit in the precocious child. He had got her very cheap. If he trained her carefully he might make a good deal of money out of her. The precocious little Valerie left her parents without the slightest regret. Her life had been one of long torture with them. The circus proprietor was a big, burly man, not destitute of a rough geniality. There was a hard look in his eyes, a dogged squareness of the jaw that suggested a latent brutality. On the whole, however, he was a welcome relief from her former torturers, who had never thrown a kind word to her from the day of her birth. Sometimes he was generous, sometimes he was brutal, as the mood took him. Often he swore at her till she trembled in every limb. Occasionally in his cups he beat her, but he was always sorry the next day and did his best to make amends. In short, he was a ruffian with a certain amount of decent feeling and an uncertain temperament. She stayed with him till she was seventeen. She might have stayed with him forever had not a sudden severance been put to their relations by the man's sudden death brought about prematurely by his constant indulgence in alcohol. Valerie could never recall the years that succeeded without a shudder. The circus was broken up, she was left helpless and friendless. It was during those terrible years that the iron entered her soul, when she experienced the keen, cruel suffering of the really poor when she went to bed night after night, cold and hungry after tramping the streets in vain for work. A weaker spirit would have succumbed to the temptation that was always at hand, for she was a very attractive girl. But she was resolved with her indomitable grit to keep herself pure. She turned away disdainfully from the leering old men, the callous young ones who accosted her as she paced the streets in her restless tramp for an honest living. Better the river than that. After many vicissitudes she came to anchor at last. She was then about twenty-two. She was very clever at educating herself. She had taught herself to sing, she had taught herself to play the piano, she had taught herself to dance. She got an engagement at one of the minor halls in Paris to do a turn which combined singing and dancing. She was very pretty and attractive. In a small way she made a name. At the end of three months the manager trebled her salary. To this minor music hall came one night the rich financier, a somewhat shady one if the truth must be told, Monsieur Varenne, a man of about fifty-five who had never married. He was greatly attracted by this elegant young girl. Her voice was small, her dancing was nothing great, but there was an indefinable charm about her that appealed to his somewhat jaded senses. He obtained an introduction through the manager, who was only too anxious to oblige such a well-known personage. He invited her to supper. She accepted the invitation graciously, but coldly. Her coldness inflamed him the more. When they met he was surprised at her cleverness, the correctness with which she expressed herself. This was certainly no ordinary girl of the music halls. "'Tell me something about yourself, my dear,' he said as they sat over their coffee. I did not expect to find you such a charming companion. Valerie smiled a little bitterly. I have not very much to tell. I expect my lot has been like that of many thousands in this delightful world. I am a child of the gutter. 
my father and mother beat and starved me and sold me for a paltry sum to the proprietor of a travelling circus it wasn't exactly a rosy life then but it was paradise to where i had been he died i was thrown on my beam ends i can't tell you what i have been through for the last few years i couldn't bear to talk of it i have suffered everything that the poor have to suffer in such profusion cold hunger the most absolute misery and at last she looked round at the luxurious appointments of the restaurant a little disdainfully i find myself in receipt of a decent salary and the guest of a rich man who is pressed upon me every dainty and i have so often wanted a meal varenne was a very kindly man in spite of his somewhat sharp ways in business those last few pathetic words had gone straight to his heart she had often wanted a meal and she was a most attractive girl many would have called her beautiful it is a sad history my poor child he said sympathetically he paused a moment before he put the delicate question and during those terrible years when you suffered hunger and privation you kept yourself straight it would have been so easy to go wrong so excusable under the circumstances of course she answered and there was a note of wounded pride of indignation in her voice i am not that sort of woman better the river than that i might give myself to a man out of love or gratitude but never merely for money it was a new experience for the wealthy financier here was a girl who had just stepped off the platform of a music hall where she was no doubt earning a very modest salary who had grit and backbone in her and moreover a proper pride and self-respect he had of course with an easy confidence of a man of the world imagined the usual termination to such an adventure but he recognized at once that he could not make any proposition of the kind he meditated he pressed her hand tenderly at parting and arranged a further meeting they met several times and varenne went through agonies of indecision but the attraction was too strong and at last he asked her to marry him it was that or losing her altogether and did it matter much his world would laugh at him as a matter of course say he had got into his dotage and a girl who was young enough to be his daughter there is no fool like an old fool he told himself rather ruefully but she had so subjugated him that he was quite a humble wooer in spite of the enormous advantages he was offering her of course i am an old man i cannot expect you to have any real affection for me he said she met his glance quite frankly i have never been in love with anybody my life has been too hard to permit me to indulge in the softer emotions but i like you very much i have always hated rich men they think they can buy anything with their gold you are a rich man i know you have told me so yourself but you have a kind nature and a good heart and can you overlook the disparity of years he questioned still very humble i am twenty-two but i don't think i am very young i am old in experience and bitterness well if you care to risk the experiment i will be your wife i will do my best to make you happy they were married and this marriage was the turning point in valerie's life if everything had gone smoothly she might have forgotten those bitter experiences outlived her still more bitter rancor against the prosperous and well-to-do unfortunately the friends of monsieur varenne would not forgive him for this false step 
so unpardonable in a man of his intelligence and position. He was a fool, that was clear, but they were not going to abet him in his mad folly. Their doors were shut against his wife, this creature of the music halls to whom he was going to leave his fortune. After this bitter experience the iron entered even deeper into her soul. Her husband was kindness and tenderness itself. In his devotion to his young wife he paid no attention to the fact that he had cut himself off from his old friends, his old social life. He was ready to comply with her slightest wish. He showered on her the most costly gifts. His purse was absolutely at her disposal. She had everything that wealth could give, except the one thing she craved, to mix on equal terms with these people who despised her. When the kindly old man died, she mourned him sincerely. If she had never loved him in the true sense of the word, she had felt for him a very warm and grateful affection. On his deathbed she had faltered forth a few words of self-reproach, had blamed herself for taking advantage of his generosity for not having sufficiently counted the cost to himself. On this point he had reassured her, "'I have been very happy, my dear, happier than I ever expected to be. I would not have changed anything.' She came into that considerable fortune which was of so little use to her. During her few years of married life she had educated herself into a woman of considerable accomplishments, for she had a very quick and acute intelligence. Her socialist proclivities were now fully developed after the scurvy treatment at the hands of her husband's friends. The circles where these doctrines were preached readily opened their doors to an attractive and enthusiastic young woman whose wealth would be very useful for propaganda. She was more than the equal of these purse-proud parvenus who would not accept her acquaintance in intellect and behavior. She felt it bitterly. Very soon she came under the influence of Contreras, who was possessed of great personal magnetism. His recent arguments, his fiery eloquence, quickly led her a step further, from socialism to anarchy. In a very short space she became one of the leading spirits of the Brotherhood. As the old regime would not receive her, she would do her best to overthrow it and assert the doctrine of absolute equality. Contreras came frequently to the Grand Hotel de Lepar to visit his young colleague. He had very charming manners, this elderly enthusiast, and Valerie liked him very much apart from his principles. He was one of the few rich men she had ever known, her late husband being another, whom she did not despise. He was no mere hoarder of wealth, using it as a means to enslave his less fortunate fellow creatures. Contreras came in one afternoon in a very cheerful mood. She looked at him eagerly. She could read his countenance pretty well by now. "'You have something to tell me, Contreras?' The old man smiled. "'Yes, my dear, I have got what we wanted. You can walk in boldly. There will be no smuggling through the back door, although we could have managed that if the other had failed. Did you get it in the quarter you expected?' "'Yes, I had a little tussle with Del Pineda, but I overcame his scruples. Besides, he is considerably in my debt. I assured him that he would never be accused of complicity, that I would take all the blame on my own shoulders.' He rubbed his hands and chuckled softly. What does Contreras, a man of means and position, with powerful connections in Spain, know of the secret sentiments of Mademoiselle de Mont, a charming young lady of wealth whom he has met abroad? 
Mademoiselle de Mont asked for his good offices in a certain matter of a most apparently innocent nature. He places himself at her disposal and secures what she wants through the agency of a certain duke who is equally ignorant of her real purposes. A dreamy look stole into the young woman's eyes. She spoke in a low voice, as if she were muttering to herself, "'A week to wait, only just one little week, and then if all goes as we think and hope, the dawn of a new era. But I shall not live to see it.'" End of chapter 13 Recording by Tom Weiss TomsAudiobooks.com